All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started. It's a couple of minutes after 8, and some more people may come, but you've gotten up early and you're here, so we'll just begin. My name is uh, Rebecca Naylor. Uh, I am a surgeon by training and profession. I spent my career in India uh, as a missionary in the Bangalore Baptist Hospital in South India, and uh, for the last... 10 or 12 years, I've been with my mission board, the International Mission Board of Southern Baptists, mobilizing healthcare people to go all over the world on mission, short and long term, and uh, consulting with the mission board on uh, health strategies overseas. So I've kind of been a part of the medical mission scene now for getting on to 49 years. So um, anyway... I guess I'm pretty good at the past, so we'll see how I do with the present. <laughs> Whether I can still think of the future, we, we will discover. Okay, so that's our topic for this morning. We're going to talk about just a broad picture of medical missions, past, present, and future. It did advance, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're good. Um, so in this uh, session, what we're going to do is to define historically what's been the approach to medical missions, and we're going to look at some present-day strategies. We could be here all day talking about the wide range and gamut of, of strategies, and then we're going to look toward future, the 21st century. What does it look like? So... We're going to start with the past because our past, our model is Jesus himself. And if you look at the the Gospels, you see many examples of Jesus healing and preaching. In fact, most of the encounters involved both. Uh, Some involved only the sharing the good news of who he was and Only four or five times did he heal without any record of the spiritual conversation. So, but most of the time, it's both and. This verse in Matthew 9 is just one of my favorite verses. And Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And the next verse goes on and says... That he, you know, he looked out at the crowds and he was filled with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when you think about compassion, it, the word means feeling with, but you look at, at the word and it always results in action. And if you look in the gospels when Jesus, it, it, multiple times we see that he had compassion and then he did something. So um, that's just kind of where we start with medical missions. We also find our mandate from Jesus when he sent them out to preach that the kingdom of heaven has come near, raise the dead, cleanse those that have leprosy, drive out demons. He sent them to preach and to heal. Well, moving along, we come to uh, the time of, of the book of Acts, and the early church, and one of my favorite stories is right there at the beginning where Peter and John were were going to the temple to pray, it said, 
And there was this uh, beggar that uh, habitually was always there. It made me think about my experiences in India. Very often in front of churches, the beggars would, would be sitting on the street. Well, anyway, there was the beggar, and he had not walked because he was lame and could not walk. And Peter and John stopped. Scripture says that they, he, Peter looked at him. You know, eye contact is so important. And uh, I'm sure the guy thought, ah, money is coming. This is great. But Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have. I will give you, get up and walk. And of course the man was healed and he was leaping and praising God. They went into the temple and and all the people were so amazed. And then what happened? It opened the opportunity for Peter to preach. He healed the man. The people saw it. They were amazed and they were ready to listen to what Peter had to say about Jesus. There there are other examples in Acts about healing, and we don't have time to do all the Bible study this morning, but you can do it for yourself. And then as we move along in the early uh, church, in the first three, four centuries uh, of the church, they repeatedly, we know from history, that they addressed urgent needs in their communities in a practical way, expressing love and um, took care of the sick. I read about a plague, and you know, we've kind of, we're in one, uh, in the year 165. It's estimated that about a third of the people in the world died. And then there was another one in 250 something. Well, the pagans uh, fled, they ran away from it, plus they had no answer as to why this happened. And the Christian worldview could talk about the fallen world and sin and the remedy for that, which is Jesus Christ. And they stayed and took care of people. And, of course, that had an amazing uh, witness. So the, the world saw agape love in action, and it was a big factor in that rapid spread of the Christian faith in those early centuries. There was this gentleman that lived in the 4th century in Turkey, and uh, they had a bad famine. Uh, he and the church, uh, they built a church. They, they called the inn uh, where travelers could stay. They called it a hospice. We use that word differently now. And he built a hospital for the sick. And this is just a good example of, of the church community that was meeting physical needs and spiritual needs. And then we go on through the Middle Ages. Remember all the, uh, all the orders, the monks, the nuns, all that, uh, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the, uh, the Nestorians. Uh, there's a whole group of them. Uh, there was one order that totally addressed leprosy, for example, and they did much in the care of the sick. They, of course, were also involved in education, improvement of agriculture. And these missionary movements that arose out of these orders always put together acts of mercy with faith uh, and spreading the faith. 
Well, we finally, you know, make it all the way to modern missions. We're moving right along through, you know, the Reformation has now happened and all that's taken place now. And we're in the late 1700s. And there was this doctor named John Thomas went out from England to India in the late 1780s. He then went back to England. And it was about that time that William Carey was uh, burdened about going to the heathen and felt called to the country of India. And the Baptist Missionary Society in England was formed. And William Carey and John Thomas together in 1793 went back to India. Uh, John Thomas uh, was a doctor. He did take care of people and he didn't live too many years after they went in 1793. I think he died in 1801 or 2 or something. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. And he spent, he never went back to England. He spent his whole life, uh, in India. A brilliant man, translated scripture into many languages, uh, addressed social needs, outlawed uh, got the government to outlaw widow burning and killing female infants. Uh, he was a botanist. He designed the botanical gardens in Calcutta, and they're still there. Um, so, I mean, he established a university, an amazing man, and constantly sharing his faith, training up believers who, in turn, would be able to share their faith. Well, the Dr. John Scott Scudder was the first American medical missionary that we know of. In 1819, he set out to the country of Ceylon, which we know today is Sri Lanka. And he went there. Uh, an amazing family. I'm going to tell you about his granddaughter in a minute. But he had seven sons, and all of them became missionaries in India, uh, most of whom were doctors. So, um, quite a remarkable man. Clara Swan is the first female uh, medical missionary that we know of. And around 1870 or so, she went to India. Uh, And uh, one story I read about her was um, she'd been there 10 or 15 years treating thousands of people, sharing the gospel faithfully. And the part of the India where she was... The, the princely ruler was a Muslim. and But he was so impressed with this woman and her care, he invited her to be the physician in the royal palace for all the women in his harem. And, uh, and so for years, she had total access to the ruler in that part of India. Um, an example of, of the access that health care gave uh, for the gospel. Um, So, granddaughter of Dr. John Scudder, Dr. Ida. Uh, I I always include this because the story meant so much to me. Uh, She grew up in India, dad a doctor, missionary, and she uh, was determined to go back to America and go to school and find a good husband who'd make money, and she was going to have a very fine, comfortable life and forget India. Well... Uh, during college, she went back to India to see her parents. And while she was visiting, one night, three times there came a knock at the door. And each time it was a man 
uh, looking for a doctor because his wife was in labor and in trouble. And when he would find out that the doctor was a man, he said, no, don't come. You can't treat my wife. And the next day, there were three funerals in the village. And God used that to call her that she needed to come back to get trained, come back to India, start a medical school for women in India so that they could help people like this. And she did that. She came back, went to medical school at Columbia University in New York, uh, graduated, and in 1901 she went back to India, and that uh, she started the clinic, then the hospital, then the medical school. It's today one of the premier medical institutions in all of South Asia. Today it's a 3,000-bed hospital referral center, uh, all those things. A, a great story. Well, from the 1800s till middle or late 20th century, we just saw a, a multiplication and a flourishing of mission hospitals. It happened all over the world, uh, basically. And, uh, you know, in all kinds of places. Um, so that kind of brings us up to the present and the present being the present, and maybe the last 10 years, 15 years or so. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Uh, Needless to say, it's easy to talk about COVID. We're still in it, and we're still living with it. Um, The graph was through late August. I didn't update the graph, but I did update the number. And as of the end of October, about 10 days ago, um, the Known five million, a little over five million people had died of COVID, and of course, I'm sure many died that we will never know about. Um, I know in India, many died that we don't count. So uh, that is there. Uh, look at this number: children under five. Um, and you look at that bar on your left. That's the under fives. That is not exceeded until people are past 75. And so, you know, you think about that, it's just mind-boggling. How many children are are dying? And probably half of those, roughly, are preventable. At least half. Um, A big thing today is all the displaced people. And then more are happening every day. Um, 80 million, roughly, and this number keeps growing, are displaced. Uh, the majority internally displaced. They've had to flee their homes, but they're still inside their country. And then you've got the refugees that had to cross international borders. And you've got asylum seekers who haven't even been declared refugees by the UN or whoever. And they're trying to find asylum in other countries. Something that's, a couple of things here that are astonishing to me. You think about the fact that every day 30,000 people are displaced. That's just overwhelming. And then that bottom one, you know, we hear so much about it here in our own country. But most of those displaced people are in the developing world, which didn't have health care to start with. And now they've got all these people that have come in 
Well, it, the story is obvious. Uh, our cities. Uh, today, about a quarter of the people that live in cities are in slums. Uh, I learned a new term. It's politically correct to call these informal settlements. Um, but anyway, they're slums, okay? Uh, often no water, no sanitation, no health care, n- nothing. And, uh, you know, most of the migrants and refugees and people like that, where do they end up? In cities. People are coming from the rural parts of their countries looking for work and coming into the cities. Another topic that you say, well, is this health care? Well, yes, it does impact. Uh, trafficking. Um, and this is worldwide, including our own country right here. And uh, probably 30 million people being trafficked right now worldwide. And most, the majority, it's either labor or sex. Uh, one of that, that bottom number is astonishing. 300,000 U.S. teens become victims every year. And it's, it's all around us. And I, I know for me, I'm hardly aware. Um, and this is the really big reality. More than 150,000 people every day are dying. And they don't know Jesus. They're going to hell. And we're, we are to tell them. Well, uh, Restricted countries. We hear about this all the time. This is part of our present day world. And uh, the Pew Research Center came up. This is 2019 pictures. And that dark red is where there is very high government restriction on religion. Um, And, you know, you can look at China and Russia occupying a big part of that map if you know your geography. But a lot of countries... And it's getting more every year. Um, but some places it's government hostility. And some places it's social hostility is really bad. And of course some places it's both. But um, the red ones are where the social hostility is so great. And uh, you know, um, it, even the dark brown, That's those are just... They're high, just not very high. Uh, a, a big part of our world. And if you put government and social restrictions together, a third of the unreached, unengaged people groups in our world live in places that are both high government restriction and high social restriction. Well, so how do you get to them? They're dying. Health care. Um, the healthcare professional is unique, can cross every geographic barrier. We can cross every cultural barrier, every economic barrier. Think of that lady that took care of the prince's harem in India. Think of the poorest villager. They all need us. And the best part, the very best part is, we can get to a spiritual conversation in minutes. And Basically, nobody else can do that. I mean, they can't. Um, 
We talk about, in missions today, we talk about health strategies. Uh, that means a plan, you know, kind of. So what are health strategies? Those initiatives that are related to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health, which put believers into strategic contact with unbelievers and are fully integrated into the missionary task. And this is, this is true in America, and it's true wherever you may live or work or serve in the world. Believer with unbeliever. Holistic, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. It, that's what is healthcare missions. We talk about the ABCs of a healthcare strategy, church planting strategy. And uh, basically these also apply right here in America. Uh, access. This isn't just showing up. This isn't being able to appear one day. This is sustained. It is with permission. Uh, the authorities recognize that you are there and permit it. And you're there for a valid reason. In many of these places, especially we've talked about all these restricted places, you cannot stand on the street corner and preach. You cannot stand on the street corner and hand out tracts. Uh, you need to get into a, a an environment that is without interruption and secure and safe. Not necessarily for you. I mean, that incidentally may be true. But the most important thing is for the person to whom you're speaking. And, as, and there are places in the world where even if they're not interested, if they're just observed to be hearing, they can be punished. So behind closed doors, it could be anywhere, most commonly a home, the clinic where it's you and the patient only, uh, a tea shop, uh, wherever. Caring for needs. And I add another C, and that is communication. If you don't speak the gospel, they cannot be saved. And we, we sometimes kind of cop out and say, well, you know, I'll show Jesus by my loving, compassionate care. Absolutely. We will do that. And we must do that. But that will not save anybody. So you've got to share the gospel. And obviously that applies wherever you work or study. We, Jesus commanded us to make disciples. Disciples multiply. And then we empower those churches, those local people, those believers to carry on the same ministry of witness, preaching, and healing. We talk about the missionary task, and it, 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 it kind of parallels these ABCs. Um, entry, access. I defined that for you, and so that's access. It's not, we think of it access physically like we can go there. It, it's really access for the gospel. A way that the gospel can get to those people. And then of course evangelism and even discipleship. Both may need to occur behind closed doors. And the disciples multiply and you're going to form healthy churches. Uh, as you make disciples and you're going to develop leaders within those groups and they in turn are going to be able to do the task. 
um, they will enter this cycle of evangel- access and evangelism and disciple making and healthy church formation. Uh, the time may come that you may exit. That does not mean abandon. It has no relationship to abandon. It means exit to partnership. They, the people whom you have discipled, whom you have trained, now take over the leadership. Uh, you might even still be there, or you might not. You may now have gone to another place and started again. Um, caring for needs impacts every part of that task. Well, traditionally, we think of the Mission Hospital. Uh, generally, they have been placed in underserved places, unevangelized places, and uh, they've been traditionally very strong in evangelism, which is wonderful, and churches have been started through these hospitals. Um, quality, compassionate care, evangelism, education, uh, discipleship ministries of staff in those hospitals, uh, the relationships in the communities in which they're located, these are all positive strengths of the Mission Hospital. Um, but there are challenges. Running a hospital is costly. And somehow, financially, it, the institution has to be sustainable. Um, governance. Over and over and over, you think of all those mission hospitals that were formed in the 1800s and the first 50, 75 years of the 1900s, and, and then missionaries have left or had to leave or been thrown out or whatever. And governance was not firmly in place in many instances. And then when the missionary left, the money dried up, it fell apart, and they were closed. My own experience in India, at Independence in the late 1940s, there were about 800 mission hospitals in India. Today, they're less than 200, and many of them are just barely hanging on by a thread. Um, nationalization, and that's a good thing, but it's, it's made a big difference in what's happened in these mission hospitals. And then technology came. And, you know, health care in many countries, locally, government or otherwise, has advanced. More technology has come. Then you're back to the sustainability. And how does the mission hospital buy that CT scanner or whatever? I mean, it, 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 you can see the, the, the tensions. And you want to take care of the poor. That's very important. And yet, you've got to pay for the supplies and pay for the staff. And so, how do you do both? These are all questions and challenges that face mission hospitals. I could talk a long time about that. And outside the hospital today, we see so many things. Clinics, uh, primary care in all shapes, forms, and fashions. Uh, Community health and development, very important. Disaster response, big deal, very important. Um, Mental health programs are increasing in missions today. Um, Medical education, and I'm going to talk more about that when I come to the future, but already that is a very important part of missions today. And even wellness and fitness, some of these are for-profit businesses, but coupled with propagation of the gospel. And um, 
you know, especially in more developed countries, this is a wonderful strategy. Um, even places like Europe, the Middle East. So uh, this is just an example. I'll give you a couple of examples that are, you know, today. Uh, they wanted to access Muslim women in a city in Central Asia, and they knew in the population that diabetes was a, a problem, a, a major effect, uh, issue. So they had a kickoff event to screen blood sugars. The government knew, proved project, okay to advertise, have the fair or whatever you call it, and they come, they screen the blood sugars, they uh, identify patients uh, with permission, may we visit your home, they then start doing home visits. That will include management, of course, but also education, diet, and all those things. And in the home, behind closed doors, opportunity to share Bible stories and the good news. Uh, so that's an example of a health strategy. It may not be the mission hospital like we think of it traditionally. This is a story out of Africa, a very remote um, place that they were unreached, a people group of over a million that were unengaged, and um, just, I mean, backside of nowhere. Uh, malaria was a big problem. In fact, everything was a problem, and they had no health care. Uh, this couple, missionary couple, he was a surgeon, and she had her Ph.D. in public health. And they go there. They can access only by boat. Um, there is obviously no hospital, and he is a surgeon. Well, in time, he built a little surgery center. Every time he goes there, he has to carry everything with him. Um, but she was doing um, basically community health, health education, Bible storing in these villages. In four years... They had believers in ten villages, had started ten churches. She had already trained leaders in each who knew the health stories, knew the Bible stories. They were going to other villages. It was already multiplying. And meanwhile, uh, you know, they had addressed the issues of like the mosquitoes and the malaria and the, you know, things they could do and all these things. And their health improved. So um, a great example. Short-term missions, that's a big part of it. That really started coming, I guess, I remember we started emphasizing it maybe in the 1970s. And today, you can see what's happened, before COVID, of course, and um, how much money we spend on short-term missions. And, you know, you hear debates. Is that a good thing? Uh, well, wouldn't it be better if that money was spent, you know, just giving? But, of course, we all also know the other side of the coin. The person who goes on that short-term trip is forever changed. He comes back to his church and tells whatever happened to him. And they get excited. And they get involved. And the church is changed. So, you know... Uh, there are two sides to every story, I suppose. But this is a very important part of present-day medical missions. And I'm sure many of you have been on short-term trips. Or your churches are sponsoring. You're, you're always mobilizing people to go on a mission trip. Um, 
we've had some experience in Ukraine, uh, displaced people, war in the eastern part of the country, as you know, with Russia. And um, these people don't have access to health care. We didn't have any medical missionaries there. And, but they had the vision and saw the need, and they partnered with local churches and a few local health care people and volunteer medical teams. And so these short-term teams were very part, much a part of their strategy. And these teams would come. In, in the first year they did this, they had 70 professions of faith. The, the churches were empowered. I mean, you know, they, they saw it happening. And they saw meeting needs and sharing the gospel. And their churches were growing. And these people were being saved. And needs were being met. Uh, and Ukraine, you think Ukraine. Okay, that's Europe, you know. Well, I remember the first team we sent, the missionary wrote us and said, uh, you might mention to them, uh, they will hear... Uh, uh, bombs and guns, uh, it's mostly at night. So, you know, really they don't need to be worried. But they should be aware. Uh, it didn't bother the team. They said, we're going. You know, this is fine. Um, so that's an example of how a short-term team was very strategic. If you go short-term, you must fit into the long-term strategy. That's the key. All right. We need to look at the future. we got a little time here before we have questions. Um, there are trends, just a few of them. There are many we can talk about. The urbanization in our world is going to just increase. Um, we're going to talk about mental health, globalization in missions. This is a hot term now, looking to the future. Uh, technology apparently is going to keep increasing. Um, more and more countries we can't go to. And what's the role of education? Well, these cities. Uh, you know, we're going to the cities because the lost are going to the cities. And in 2020, about just over half of the world's population live in cities. Well, by 2050, and I remind you, young folks, this is not long off for me. It's uh, not very relevant, you know, but uh, 2050 is just 30 years from now. And we're talking about another 2 billion people living in the cities. And uh, so many of the UPGs, the unengaged, the unreached people groups, and the unengaged unreached people groups are in the cities, okay? And that, that's where unreached people are intersecting. Well, so what to do? Um, these maps, if we'll go through very quickly, just kind of get a, get a, you see these big cities are scattered over the world, okay? Uh, beginning to go south a bit. And here we are in 2050, and South Asia is just mushrooming. And look at what happened by 2100. Asia and Africa. South Asia and Africa. This is what's going to happen. Well, what are we going to do about this? Um, you think of comprehensive strategies in a city like that. I mean, just think of all the people that live in a city of 30 million. 
And uh, we want every people group and we want every community and segment of the population. There are professional people. How are you as a professional going to reach those professionals? Uh, obviously, there's students, there's factories, there's industry, there's business. And you've got workers, and you've got migrants coming in, and you've got those informal settlements. All that is in the city. Well, we think about our role. Health strategies cross every one of those segments. You can intersect any one of them through health strategies. Um, most people have to see a medical person when they're living in a city. That's pretty obvious. And it may happen in clinics. It could happen just in, you know, a marketplace. It could happen behind closed doors, all those things. I'm very quickly just going to just, these are just ideas. They're not intended to be inclusive. It's just to give you a broad picture. Mental health. Uh, you can have mental health clinics, stress seminars, suicide prevention. This is big deal, especially it really in all parts of the world, but especially developed nations. Um, support groups for all kinds of things. Addiction. It's affecting rural, urban, poor, rich, uh, every segment. It may be drugs. It may be alcohol. It could be uh, gambling. It could be all kinds of things. Um, listening centers. That's been a strategy that we're seeing develop just Hearing people, learning how to listen to people. Trauma healing is moving forward as we go into the future. Already it's big. Healing wounded hearts. Uh, all these refugees, people escaping from war, people that have been in natural disasters, even just people dealing with life, the stress of that city and trying to navigate it. Um, and then you think of the, so many strategies you could develop about elder care. Many countries are, are facing crisis in this area because the extended family structure of these societies is breaking down. And so who's going to take care of the elderly because the younger ones went off to the city to get jobs? And why couldn't you take believers and train them just in the basics of companion care? And then they're in the home behind closed doors for 8, 12, 24 hours a day. Uh, you know, just visiting and elderly and disabled in the high-rises of the cities. And they're just kind of trapped there. Um, daytime services. You could think about physical therapy or rehab services in home care. Uh, we do that in America. Uh, but you could do it in any uh, place. Build your referral system. Do it in homes. You're getting behind closed doors. Um, you don't need a lot of capital investment or money because you're going to be teaching them exercises and rehab and so forth. And um, you have to make repeated visits, sustained access. Um, and then factory projects uh, in community health, having health fairs, <coughs> um, school health programs. Um, giving basic skills to non-medical people. You can teach uh, in the slums in Bangalore where uh, the hospital that I've been related to, you know, they've taken people out of the slum and taught them how to take a blood pressure and how to go house to house and check on their medicine supply 
communicate back to the base, and then they're told what to do. So, you know, um, medical education, big deal. This can be continuing education. It can be formal academics. It can be starting um, programs in countries where now they don't have, where the government is wanting people to come and do it. Um, all levels. Uh, what are we going to do about uh, training people to take care of special needs kids or disabled people? Um, and then women's health, big area that you can think about, so many things that you can do. Uh, in mental health, even today, one in seven people have some kind of mental health problem. And depression is now the third leading contributor to the global disease burden. And this is only getting worse. So as we look to the future, it's going to get worse. Uh, 70% of those needing mental health care don't have any access to it. Um, and, of course, poverty, lack of education, unemployment, trauma, all that are, are factors that relate. Uh, trauma healing, I mentioned um, the Trauma Healing Institute, you can go to their webpage and read about that. Um, and uh, I know our mission board has also developed a trauma healing thing based kind of on THI, but all oral Bible story uh, based. So, you know, this is a wonderful thing. Um, globalization, a word about that. Uh, there are countries in the world already that are sending their believers, their believers as missionaries cross-culturally. Uh, Korea's been doing it for years, for example. And, and there are others. And so you think about healthcare professionals in those places where there are believers and there is a church. If we can envision them with mission, use it in their everyday work, in sharing the gospel, integrating their faith and practice. But maybe God's going to call some of them cross-culturally within their own country or some other country. And, and what can we do to encourage that? Uh, big, big thing for the future is telemedicine. We've learned a lot during COVID, but this is impacting missions. There's a neurologist uh, who lives in Alabama who realized that there are millions, like 35 or 40 million epileptics in the world who are not treated, or not diagnosed even. And, um, you know, they don't have care. And they're ostracized socially. Their families are ostracized. It's a big problem. And he has, this is an, a portable EEG machine, solar-powered, connect to a computer, out in the boonies of Africa, that tracing is sent to him, and he reads it. And if he, if if the person has epilepsy diagnosed, uh, phenobarbital is cheap and available almost anywhere in the world, and he can advise them locally how to how to you know get it and prescribe it. Um, he trains totally just, you know, Jane Doe out of the village to be the technician 
the lead placement and all that. Uh, non-medical missionary church planters, they're doing this. This is an example of telemedicine. Of course, another one would be consultation. Uh, we had some missionary that had a national that had a problem and they got the local doctor involved and this guy, uh, we found the, the specialist that was needed here and so it happened that way. And then, this is really fascinating. There are telemedicine kits. Uh, I've seen this. I, I was just astonished and it was fascinating. It's, you know, got the blood pressure cuff, pulse oximeter. Uh, there's even an EKG single lead thing. Um, there is a, an otoscope. Um, I mean, everything is there. And a non-medical person can, the stethoscope is there. A non-medical person can be trained how to, you know, use it. Again, solar-powered computer comes to the provider who is here or wherever, um, diagnosis made. You could do a mobile medical clinic without traveling to Africa. One patient after the next. Um, amazing. This is the future. Uh, and giving access to communities that have no health care, the gospel is shared by local believers uh, already, out of these uh, strategies, we're seeing believers in churches. So that is exciting. Well, what happened to the Mission Hospital? Yes, it still has a role. I, I believe that. I, I guess because I've worked in one so long. But quality, ethical health care. Note ethical. Um, they don't pay bribes and things. Uh they are centers of training and leadership development. They are referral centers. They continue to care for the poor. And they are centers of evangelism and discipleship. This is what the Mission Hospital needs to be doing today. In all of this, every single thing I've said this morning, every strategy I've mentioned, everything for the future, the essence of it is gospel sharing. And it's got to be intentional. It, it isn't just, well, maybe it's going to happen kind of deal. It's intentional. It has to be done strategically. It's in all your work. It is everywhere. It is your identity as a believer, your identity professionally are integrated and it's as you are a professional, you are also a Christ follower, and you're sharing both at the same time. And that is essential. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, you should leave this room thinking about all this, and looking to the future, and a rich history of medical missions for 20 centuries. And so what does God want you to do as you look to the future and be thinking of next steps? Um, there are every, every possible pathway is open. Now, we have ten minutes. Uh, happy to have any questions you would like to ask. Start here. Um, you 
talked about how there are different sort of barriers on political and a social level that provide backlash or sort of hindrance into accessing different countries. Could you maybe distinguish between what the political and social yes. barriers are? The question is to distinguish between the government restrictions and social restrictions or hostilities. The government ones are laws. Uh, if you do this, you will go to jail. And so if you share the gospel, uh, in India they call it either induced, who can define induced, or forced conversion. And if you're doing that, you're disturbing the peace and you're put in jail. Um, right now, the big hostility in India is social. There are increasing laws, but most of the persecution is coming from right-wing fundamentalists who are killing Christians. Uh, the government turns a blind eye. Okay, that's social. You look at a country like China, um, big-time government restriction, big-time. But people are pretty open and they're... The, the social hostility is much less. You go to a place like the Middle East, you're going to have both. Very much. Does that help answer your question? Yes, sir. Um, this is a comment. Um, the Christian Journal of Global Health had a special issue on the future of medical missions. Um, and there are several articles which sort of, sort of put some One is a, an, a, uh, a survey of hosp uh, hospitals, mission hospitals in India, uh, looking at this, trying to get a balance between sustainability and inclusiveness, and looking at how different hospitals have answered or responded to this challenge. And there's another article on a hospital in North India. This was an analysis of their business plan by a, a team from the Wharton School of Business. And they analyze how this hospital has approached that issue also and, and been very successful. So really some concrete suggestions about this. So this is the Journal of... Christian Journal for Global Health. And Christian Health. Journal for Global Health, an issue dealing with the future of uh, medical missions. Several articles he cited. Are there other questions? Sorry, yes. Um, are you seeing sending agencies um, supporting telemedicine as, like, sending a telemedicine as part of their organization? Or what's the, the exact path for someone to do that? Um, the path for telemedicine or sending agencies, uh, you know, moving forward with this. I can only speak for my agency, which is the IMB, and we are moving forward with it. Uh, and the path right now, we have about 10 or 12 providers. Uh, they're mid-level and, and physicians. And, um, you know, it's just, this is future. It's evolving <laughs> even as we speak. I have not, we, our interagency meetings that we have normally, we've not had since 2019 because of covid and I don't know what's happening with the other agencies. Yes? Could you 
um, speak to the establishment presently of medical hospitals, missionary hospitals, as far as support, partnerships, and funding? Who do you see, ones that are being created, how is that being done in the mainstream? Uh, the question is how are hospitals that are now being formed or created, how are they going to be funded and sustained? Um, I honestly can't answer the question because I don't know of any that are being created, though I know I'm sure there are, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm not involved. Uh, one of the things that I didn't mention that I should have in looking to the future, we're talking a lot about for-profit businesses. So in thinking of creating a mission hospital, you need to have a model that will allow for that. Profit not being profit like to make money, but profit to sustain it, Your a positive bottom line, in other words. Um, in our hospital in India, what has happened, it happened 35 years ago, uh, we moved toward having enough corporate and private business that would cover the cost of the poor whom we uh, care for. And at, at, you know, roughly a third of your load needed to be paying above cost in order to sustain those who pay at or below cost. Um, so you could think of a business model, approach the establishment of the new hospital with that mindset and involve people who know about such things. Doctors are not known to be great at that. So, um, you know, to involve business people and, and capital investors. Yeah. Yes. Maybe off topic. So, like, you talked about the past and the present and the future of medicine. What are some lessons that we can learn from the mistake from the past? Very good question. What lessons can we learn from the past so we don't repeat those? Well, I think, um, you know, I think one of the main things we can learn from the past is the very, this very thing we're talking about, sustainability. Um, the thing that's caused mission hospitals to fail. Another is governance. Another is um, it's so important that in a, a mission setting, whether it's community health or whether it's an institution like a hospital, you need to be constantly investing in the local people and constantly moving toward handing over responsibility and putting structures in place for governance by them, but that are solid so that their motives are right. Um, you know, I know in India very often what happened was uh, the, the hospital and its property, of course, went to whatever church body it was locally. And, all, and they were not medical at all, knew nothing about running a hospital, and were totally motivated by, oh, that's a source of income in the hospital, plus look at the property. What an investment. Oh, this property's great. And then the governance fell apart. Management disintegrated. So those are examples of lessons we learned. 
try to prevent those things from happening. And I think the key is really your investment in your local people, whether it's just the community where you're doing community health and eventually they take over totally the projects or whether it's an institution or whatever it is. Yes, sir. I just want to highlight my uh, new ministry of the Christian Medical Dental Association addressing that administrative need that you mentioned that physicians don't always come prepared to run organizations. So CMDA has formed a new section called the Christian Healthcare Executive Collaborative, and we're trying to take and find healthcare administrators, Christian healthcare administrators, who can be available to go out and help with things like governance, things like education, administrative education, and consulting and doing assessments and really helping to create sustainable models. So if you know Christian healthcare administrators that might be interested, on the CMDA website there's information for the Christian Healthcare Executive Collaborative because there's a huge need out there to really provide administrative assistance to physicians and other clinicians trying to create these sustainable models. Uh, he uh, spoke about the CMDA uh, uh, now has a, a area, of an emphasis, yeah, on um, uh, training uh, local administrators, executive uh, uh, training. And so uh, hospital administrators are encouraged to uh, volunteer and help them. Uh, our time is up. Thank you so very much for coming and enjoy the rest of the conference this morning.